Colossians chapter 2. Faith lies at the very heart of Christianity. Protestantism was born through the rediscovery of the words that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17. But if we're honest this morning, it's hard to live by faith. Living by faith, I think, for most of us feels difficult because we're never entirely sure that we're doing it right. And that bothers us. And because it's challenging to live by faith, we tend to drift towards some form of legalism. If we're honest again this morning, I think, our, I think we would have to admit that our flesh loves legalism. Fasting, regulations about worship, regulations about food, Sabbath days, bodily disciplines... Special religious observances with all their regulations make many people feel spiritual. Paul reminds us in this chapter in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. We have to be careful of artificial humility, which is just a fake attempt at at copying genuine spiritual humility through doing all of these things. And people looking at you going, oh, this guy is so holy. He's so spiritual. He's fasting three days a week. I mean, he must be so close to God. And there's nothing wrong with exercising discipline in the spirit to the glory of God. Don't mishear me this morning. But when it's done in the flesh, when it's done to our own praise, then it becomes sin. Anything not done in faith is sin. And we as believers should not be stumbling blocks. Giving up certain habits doesn't make us more spiritual. Our relationship to Christ, Paul is going to show us this morning, is a living union. He is the head. We are the members of the body. And the body functions through nourishment, not legislation. We grow in our Christian faith when we grow in our union with him and our power and nourishment comes through him, not through all this rule following that we think we have to do because it makes our flesh feel better that I'm doing something. As one theologian put it, we cannot say to his stomach, start digesting, stop hurting. How foolish. Yet people think the Christian life personally and the church collectively can be made spiritual by carnal regulations and disciplines. This then gets us to the heart or the the main theme of the book of Colossians. All we need is Jesus Christ. Man-made systems and regulations can seem very spiritual. But they're merely worldly principles. Man-made disciplines such as asceticism can be attractive 
But it's impossible for the flesh to control itself. It's, it's not possible. And it definitely can't perfect itself. Galatians 3.3 asks, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Our, our union with Christ, this, this living union, this life cannot be controlled by man-made rules and laws but only by the principles that God has put into the body. Only the life of another can control our life. And we have his life within us, Paul says. This morning, Paul, this section of the text is really the heart of Colossians, the heart of the message that Paul is trying to communicate to this young church. And I'm going to break it down and and look at verses 6 and 7, and then verses 8 through 15. Let me read verses 6 through 7 this morning. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want you to notice first that that believers walk just as they received Christ by faith. Our continued walk in this life of Christianity is the same way we entered into Christianity, by faith. Notice second, believers receive Christ as as Christ Jesus the Lord. Therefore, believers are to walk before him as Lord. He is the Lord of our life. He's not just our Savior. He is that. But He is also the Lord now of our life. And we're to continue walking and serving Him as the Lord of our lives. But what does this walking with Him look like? Well, first, Paul says the believer is to be rooted and built up in Christ. Now, there's two word pictures that Paul is using here to communicate this truth in verse 7. The first is the picture of a tree that that is deeply rooted. And as a believer, we should strive to be like towering trees with roots so deeply planted that no matter what the world throws at us, we do not come toppling down. Right? We're, We're here in Florida. We're used to hurricanes and the storms come through and Some trees look really impressive. But when that storm and the wind starts to blow, you realize their root system cannot withstand the force of that hurricane or that tropical storm. And while they might look impressive on the outside, because their roots are not deep into the ground, they just blow right over. Paul is saying that is not the kind of Christians we need to be this morning. We, we don't need to be impressive-looking trees. We need to be deeply rooted trees. And we are deeply rooted in Christ. The ground provides the strength against the, the winds and the storms, but it also gives the nourishment of life. Again, this picture of being nourished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's a second picture, being built or constructed, and that's that of a building. Jesus Christ is the foundation for our life. He is the only true foundation of our life. 
So a mature believer is a person who has built his life upon Christ. Not only is he deeply rooted in Christ, but then he builds everything about his life on Christ. Paul wants us to see that a strong attachment to Christ allows this flow of nourishment to the believer. And the believer is to walk in a continuous, unbroken communion and fellowship with Christ. Second, we are to walk established in the faith just as we have been taught, Paul says. And again, the word established means here to be firm or stable or holding fast, not letting go to what we were taught, what we believe. And this shows the necessity, again, I think, of the last couple of sermons of having faithful ministers to teach you what to hold on to. When believers have faithful ministers, they, they are to learn all that they can about this faith and, and, and then hold on fast to it. And not let go. Mature believers are established in the faith and they are to stand fast in the faith just as they've been taught. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So we need to walk established in the faith just as we have been taught. Third, this walk should be marked by thanksgiving. There should be a spirit of thanksgiving about the believer who is walking in his union with Christ. Our Lord has done so much for us this morning. So much that flows on and on. It's never ceasing. His grace and mercy is new every morning. Therefore, as believers, we need to learn to walk in a spirit of thanksgiving. A thanksgiving that overflows in praise to the Lord, not just on Sunday mornings, but moment by moment throughout the day, throughout the week. Because after all, we have been given a new life. Because we are buried with Christ, then we are raised with Christ from the dead. And given a new life with God. An eternal life. And I think it's important this morning to remember that. Because it's so easy for us to get into a place of woe is me, right? Oh, it's, it's so hard. Lord, these people that you've put me around. My, my work is driving me crazy. These, these customers, these employees that I work with. Lord, this, this, my small group's driving me crazy. They just, they just all annoy me this week. I know none of y'all experience that, right? It's just easy to fall into that place of just, Lord, why am I here? I don't understand. What's wrong? Instead of remembering to be thankful for all that you have. To move your focus away from what you don't have to all of the things that you do have. So many of us miss how God is working in our lives because we're so focused on what we don't have. Instead of counting all of the blessings that we do have. 
But I think it's important as we look through this passage to pay attention to the way that Paul is dealing with this false teaching. This is, this is the heart of Colossians, this, this section. And, and, and he is dealing with the problem. But notice how he deals with the problem. Paul begins with the positive. And I think this is important for us to hear this morning because we live in an era of discernment bloggers and discernment podcasters, and they make a living by just critiquing and being negative of everything that's happening in the church. This, however, is not Paul's approach. Paul first encourages them to hold on to authentic teaching that they had received from Epaphras about Christ and his lordship in verses 6 through 7. And Paul continues in Colossians, and in this section, but throughout the rest of the book, to constantly be coming back to the positive side of his argument throughout the book. But Paul also wasn't just a nice guy that didn't want to offend anybody. After holding out the positive side in verses 6 through 7, he's now going to turn to the second section we're going to look at this morning, the negative side. And really, the negative side goes from verses 8 through 23. And here you find three parallel warnings that Paul gives. The first one is in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The second warning that is beyond our scope of the sermon this morning is in verse 16 therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink in verse 18 is the third one let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind so we have these three parallel warnings in this passage but i'm only going to handle the first of these three warnings this morning we'll deal with the next uh, the final two next week but in verses 8 through 15 paul develops a a powerful positive theological argument against false teaching by rehearsing the complete spiritual victory with christ let's start by this section by just looking at verses 8 through 10 Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So let's look at what this fullness of Christ looks like i think it's important first to talk about this term philosophy it occurs only here in the bible that the word that paul is using for this and paul's not here denouncing all philosophical study that the article the appearing before the term in the greek suggests that his opponents had characterized their own teaching as the philosophy or a philosophy so paul is is trying to attack whatever that heresy is that's going on in the colossian church this specific teaching is what paul is opposing 
But what does he mean by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world? Well, there's a couple of options based on the context that we could interpret this section of the verse by. Let me give you four. One, it's the basic elements of the world. In other words, earth, air, fire, and water. That, that could be one option that this group is saying, hey, you, you somehow need to worship these things. Second, it could be the elementary teachings or the other principles of the world. So just basic, elemental, fundamental teachings. Third, it can mean heavenly bodies composed of what, whatever their basic elements are. So the sun, the moon, the stars, those kind of things. Or fourth, it could be the elementary spirits of the universe. Demons, angels, and other kinds of heavenly spirits. And I think in some ways it's probably a combination of all of these things. Philo puts it this way, some nations have made divinities of the four elements, earth and water and air and fire. Others have made divinities of the sun and moon and the other planets and fixed stars. Others again of the whole world. So there's this idea in this ancient worldview that it's very easy for them to look up and go, oh, that must be a god. That, that must be some kind of being, right? And so is it the sun and moon and stars that they're talking about? Maybe, but is it also the idea that those are gods? Probably. The tendency to spiritualize or to make divine the material elements was a very strong cultural current the people of God had to fight against during this time. The Lord, for instance, warns the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4.19, And be aware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Right. So even back in Deuteronomy, God is having to warn the, the nation of Israel, to be careful <laughs> that you don't look up and start worshiping these things. That, that, that's just a, a, an innate human desire of this ancient worldview. I think if you look around, it hasn't really gone away. <laughs> the elements, though, as spiritual beings is probably the most popular option among contemporary scholars. And we, this is evidenced by the adoption of the majority of modern translations. So in your ESV, what, what you read is elemental spirits of the world, right? And this interpretation has very strong contextual support. Since the two passages where the phrase occurs, both refer to spiritual beings. So in other words, in the section where this text is mentioned or this word is mentioned, if you look above and below, there is a direct link to some kind of spiritual being. The other place that this shows up is in Galatians 4, 8 through 9, where we read this. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not gods, that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And in Colossians 2, Paul refers to Christ's supremacy over every power and authority in verse 10. To Christ's victory over those same powers in verse 15. 
and to angels later in verse 18, as we'll see next week. Paul returns again to a positive argument in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? Paul's attacking the problem, but he's attacking it with true, right theology. He wants them to understand who Christ is. And in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. All that we can know or experience of God is found in Christ. Paul is going to just drive that home over and over and over again in the book of Colossians. If you want to know God, know Christ. If you want to learn more about God, learn more about Jesus. We don't need to look anywhere else. In verses 11 through 15, Paul elaborates on this fullness that Christians experience in Christ. That, that fullness is ours because we are in Christ, as we'll see in verse 11. And that fullness includes, though it's not limited to, our victory over sin, verse 11, our new life, in verse 13, and our full and final forgiveness, the protection and the protection from the power of evil spirits, in verses 14 through 15. Well, let's look at verses 11 and 12 at our victory over sin. This, this fullness in Christ has given us a victory over sin. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul talks about a new circumcision here in this section. And Paul calls on the Colossians to call to mind their baptism. Right? Again, attacking the false teaching, he's bringing back a true teaching, a positive teaching. Remember your baptism. And all that was involved with that baptism and all that is implied by that baptism that they would be delivered from this false teaching if they would do that. You see, their baptism involved a spiritual circumcision. A, a circumcision made not with hands, Paul says. Even in the Old Testament, the symbolical character of the outward sign of circumcision was emphasized. What God really desired was not the external sign for its own sake, but the circumcision of the heart. You see that in Deuteronomy 10, 16, 36, or Jeremiah 4, 4. And what he was driving toward was this inward purification, which Paul calls the true circumcision in our text. But the Israelite who understood the importance of heart circumcision didn't usually think himself then exempt of the requirement of physical circumcision, right? He's like, I understand what the Lord is asking me for, so I don't have to do the other part. No, no. He's like, I understand what the Lord is asking me for, and so I'm going to do the other part as a show of faith for the internal circumcision. But for us, thankfully, the work of Christ has so thoroughly exhausted the significance of the original ordinance, as well as the entire ceremonial law, that it's now been replaced. 
Paul's choice of language here could be a clue, perhaps, to what the false teaching may have included. Perhaps, and again, we don't know for sure, but perhaps some Judaizers had come in to this group of Gentiles and said, oh, it's, it's great that you have Jesus, but now we need to circumcise you. They wanted to add something to Jesus, right? Jesus isn't enough. You also now have to be circumcised. Perhaps that's the argument. The spiritual circumcision is further called the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ is the inward cleansing that occurs through his death, resurrection, and inward dwelling presence in those who have faith in him. By putting off the body of flesh, Paul refers to the baptismal experience of the believer, which is described in Romans 6.6. As as the crucifixion, our old self, and the destruction of the sinful body. And this experience involves considering one's former self and all of its desires and tendencies to be dead. And this is necessary to put on the new nature, to put on Christ himself in his resurrected life. The believer must put off the whole personality that's organized around rebellion toward God. Right? That is our flesh. That is our old self. And, and baptism not only proclaims that the old order is passed and done with, but it proclaims that a new order has been inaugurated. Right? So this picture of us going down under the water and dying is figurative but it is also in some ways literal of our spiritual rebellion and our old flesh against god but it's also a picture of our new life the new spirit that is indwelling us and empowering us to not be a rebel toward god baptism therefore implies a sharing in christ's resurrection as well as in his death and his burial It is through faith that the believer bids farewell to the old life and embarks upon the new. As Bruce notes, the sacrament of baptism derives its efficacy not from the water or from the convert's token burial in it, but from the saving act of Christ and the regenerating work of God producing that faith union with the risen Lord of which the sacrament is the sign and the seal. The power comes from the saving act of Christ and being in him. Now let's turn our attention now to the last three verses and see how Paul concludes this section with the triumph of Christ. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him Paul says, you and I were spiritually and morally dead in our earlier pagan days. 
In our days of rebellion against God, we were dead. But now we have been brought to life again. Brought to life in Christ. Who was himself dead and came to life again. Your new life this morning, if you have it, is a sharing in the new life that Christ received when God was raised from the dead. And in giving you this new life with Jesus, God has broken you clean away from all of your past sins. Verse 14, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The forgiveness that we enjoy in Christ is whole. All our sins are forgiven. The completeness of our forgiveness is the theme of verse 14, in which Paul is presenting two striking word pictures. The first word picture that Paul presents is that of, a, of an IOU kind of document. This, this document rec- represents the complete allegiance that all humans owe to God, right? However, our sins stand as evidence that we have failed to uphold that allegiance, And so this document stands against us. It condemns us. But Paul says God has wiped that document clean. Completely removing it from the picture. In the second word picture, Paul highlights the completeness of that removal and the means by which he has accomplished it. He states that God has nailed it to the cross. This statement emphasizes the finality of our forgiveness and the means by which it was achieved. In essence, our sins were nailed to that cross with Christ. And we're no longer held accountable for them. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, beautifully captures the point of this verse. My sin, oh The bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is why a Christian walks in thanksgiving. Because they know what has been accomplished for them on the cross. But Paul doesn't stop there. He could. That, that, that's a, that amazing truth should lead us to a life of thanksgiving in and of itself. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ crucified and risen Lord is all. All the forces of the universe are subject to him. Even the hostile forces that work in this world, are subject to him. In this verse, Paul concludes his explanation about how we, can, how we have been brought to fullness in Christ in verse 10. This verse reflects on a key concern in the whole book of Colossians, which is these powers and authorities. In verse 10, Paul simply asserts that Christ is the head of these spiritual authorities, In this verse, he shows how that headship has been expressed. 
namely through the cross of Christ. God has won a victory over all of these rebellious powers. Therefore, verses 10 and 15 kind of complement each other in the same way as the earlier verses were with the spiritual powers. In verse 16, Christ's supremacy over the powers is established by virtue of creation. While in verse 15, the activity by which God has stripped those powers is through the cross of Christ. Both texts assume a rebellion against God's rule on the part of at least many of these spiritual beings. But God's victory over the powers was not a private affair. God disarmed them and made a public spectacle of them. The verb that's used here in this context means expose publicly. Similar to the only other time in the New Testament that it's used, which is in Matthew 1.19, where Joseph chooses to divorce Mary quietly rather than to expose her to public disgrace. So the Greek word alludes to this Roman tradition of awarding a victory parade to successful generals. So a general would come back from a successful campaign, and he would come back into the city, and, and there would be this parade of the victor, right? I mean, the closest thing we have to this nowadays is when someone wins the Super Bowl or the, you know, the, the, the baseball, like whatever the championship is, they have this victory parade, right? They bring the victors through the town, right? And, and that comes from this concept of you going off to war and winning the battle and you're parading the slaves behind you that you captured. This activity of leading in a triumphal procession is referred to by the verb that Paul uses here. And in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul compares his service to Christ with being led as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. See, the picture there that he's trying to paint is that Christ has come and won victorious. And we walk behind him in his victory. In his victory, we have victory. We are now his people. We are now part of him. And our English versions translating it with triumphing or triumphed, it doesn't quite capture the, the, the nuance of the public display that Paul is trying to get at here. Paul is trying his best to make it clear that God has removed any claim that the spiritual powers might have over us. And he did so publicly on the cross. Paul asserts that God has removed any power that evil spirits may have over us by sending Christ as the final and definitive solution to our sin. Believers need to understand that Christ victory over sin and death which is celebrated and displayed in his resurrection and ascension is also ours christ's authority over the rulers and authorities has been decisively manifested and believers share that authority in him not in in ourselves but in him we, we are no longer subject to the rulers of this world. We are subject only to Christ. When we are in him by faith. Well, this morning, just as I started, it's so easy for us to move out of faith and into ourselves. 
in, in some form of legalism, some form of man-made rules that, that are like a blanket that wraps around us and make us feel good. And these aren't necessarily all bad things. I, re- I remember being in seminary and having a preaching class and being judged by some of the other people in the class because the school that they went to was different than the school I went to. And in the school that they went to, their professors taught them the only illustrations you should ever use in a sermon is another biblical illustration. That's it. And so when I got up and I did my little thing and we critiqued our preaching, that was the thing they, well, that, that's not a good sermon because you used all these other illustrations. You should only use illustrations from the Bible. To which I responded, where is that written? I mean, it's wise. Don't get me wrong. If there's a great biblical illustration, use it. But don't be more biblical than the Bible. Right? It's so easy for us to add all of these rules that make us feel better about the way we do things that aren't in the Bible. And so this morning, I would just ask you, To ask him who is inside you. To convict you and show you, where am I comforting in something other than Christ? And that you would confess and repent and put your faith in him instead of those things. Let's pray, Father.